Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak. I'm here with Hamilton Souther. How are you doing? Great, Josh. Actually, really good today. Thank you for having me, and I'm excited to speak with you again. Glad to have you here. And I'll begin with you to start how we came in contact in the first place. And then we had this amazing conversation last time, and I hope we capture half of that. If we do, it'll be amazing. Uh, so I was emailing with Julian Guterly, who is a mutual friend, and he said, you got to have this guy on your podcast. And now I'm going to, I'm going to be open and frank. So we, there's some ayahuasca in there and I thought, and, and shaman, and I thought, okay, there's a chance this guy's genuine. There's also a chance it's like some Silicon Valley trendy stuff. Cause I feel like from here in New York, I feel like everyone in California is microdosing all the time. And I don't know if how much of it is like genuine authentic practice and how much of it is just people following trends. And as I said, we spoke and I, I was kind of tented. I, I don't know if you could sense I was a little tentative when we started last time. And next thing I know, or maybe 90 minutes, two hours into a conversation that we could have kept going for a long time. And I was really interested in, in bringing up some of what we talked about before and new things if, if they come up. And I wonder if you could probably describe yourself better than I could. Uh, I wonder if you could bring us up to like um, how Julian came to put us in touch and how do you identify yourself? Yeah, you know, Julie and I got to meet and uh, I was on his podcast and we got to interact through one of the um, sort of community, uh, I guess, uh, experiences that he puts on. And I was just talking with him about people that I needed to meet. You know, um, my background is ultimately that I went into the Amazon in my early 20s and I was in search of both authentic mystical experiences and also new medicinal plants. And um, I got to have both which was unbelievably exciting. And then I created Blue Morpho, which was the first center dedicated to Amazonian plant medicine, not just psychedelics or visionary plants, but all Amazonian plant medicines. And we started to receive people from all over the world. I got to uh, be one of the first people, if not the first person to sort of cross over from the Western world into a lineage of um, healers and doctors of the forest called Medico Vegetalistas. And I got to live with the elders and work with them in a very remote part of the Amazon, way beyond what people would call off-grid. And I got to live there for over four and a half years, built my first house with my hands, uh, lived from nature itself. Uh, we lived off the land in a form of subsistence and balance with, with the environment, the forest that gave us literally everything, including our medicines. And um, yeah, it was just an incredible experience over the last 20 years. I started to share that experience with other people from around the world. And um, in the last uh, four or five years, we've really been, um, you know, kind of isolated. We haven't really been speaking much. Um, I haven't been getting a lot of publicity around our work. I was already dedicated to technology projects and um, other things. And, uh, you know, in the last years, I realized, really in the last year, I realized that um, the knowledge and wisdom that we had uh, ultimately, you know, amassed in the Amazon was really important to share with people. And it was time to share it. And I saw this psychedelic renaissance happening and very few people were speaking openly about the plant medicines in a way with uh, a lot of depth and expertise. And I had 20 years in that space. And so that's ultimately how I met Julian. And then I asked him, you know, who in this space do I need to meet? Who do I need to know? And, uh, you know, we're really interested in the idea of where plant medicine and consciousness merges with sustainable living and radical change for the environment and humanity. And so you came up in that paradigm as a, a true gift and a person that was important to meet. And in the last year, I just decided we needed to, uh, I needed to meet the people that were the thought leaders in this space and uh, start to to align mission 
and align goals and understand what we were doing with our communities. And so Julian uh, really embraced that with his understandings of plant medicine and what he's doing. And that's how we ended up meeting. I want to go and find out nowadays, I feel like an ayahuasca experience, a shaman, shamanistic experience, people can sign up and just go. And 20 years ago, I don't think that was the case. So I want to ask about that. I want to quick put in uh, a note about Julian that um, my first meditation was in 2007 when I went on a Vipassana retreat for 10 days. And I kind of would do it every now and then. But something about my conversation with Julian, which was, I think, two or three years ago now, uh, we could look it up. And for something about my conversation with him led me to med meditate regularly. So now I do half an hour every other day and I haven't missed it since him. So something about that conversation really changed um, that now it's just become a very regular part of how I live. I hadn't thought about that for a while. I, I, I meditated this morning, uh, but that was about Julian. So now about you, what was it? How did you find out about what did you know about it before you went? about the type of experience that you you had or, or how did you know to go there did anyone go before you <laughs> not really not really i had uh, i had read a couple of accounts of people that had experienced ayahuasca um before and going but i had a spontaneous spiritual awakening and sort of a yeah just an awakening in my early 20s and um i started to have experiences that were very prophetic and I would be told through dreams or through um, meditations, ultimately what I needed to do or where I needed to go. And so I was guided to the Amazon. I had very little knowledge of what I was going to get myself into. I had really, like I said, only other than reading a couple firsthand accounts of people um, interacting with visionary plants from the Amazon. I had no other understanding of, of what would happen. I didn't go directly to the Amazon. I first went through southern Peru and into Bolivia and was kind of on a, a quest of my own. And looking for the right teachers and looking for people that could support me in, in the journey that I was on. And uh, ultimately, I, I ended up in the Amazon and I went out, you know, to this very, very remote place. I was guided out there and um, I had the opportunity to participate in my first ayahuasca ceremony. And it was something that was it was not a tourism experience. I was with a, a local healer and, and practitioner and um, he didn't work with tourists typically. And I was just taken deep into the forest. We collected the plants ourselves. We made the ayahuasca together. And then just with him in the forest, um, uh, by myself, I ended up participating in the, the first session with him. And, you know, it was in that session that I had the visions that I would ultimately stay there, learn to live there, train, and uh, become one of the first Western practitioners. I can't tell if I want to ask more about the journey that led you there or the experience. Is it something that you can describe? Is it? Well, you said you were looking for, um, you were searching for something. Did you know what you were looking for? Did you know, did you just know, know you'd find it, know it when you found it? Yeah, no, I didn't know what I was looking for. Um, I was told, you know, basically very, or I received very kind of sparse and, and open kind of messaging about it. I was just told that there were people there waiting for me and then I needed to go and meet them and that they were going to teach me. It was pretty, pretty wide open. I was thinking that, you know, it wouldn't happen. And so at best, I might like write a travel novel about it or something, you know. Uh, but ultimately, in my own case, it actually happened. And I did meet the people that were there. And um, they had had visions for a very long time, over 10 years before I arrived, that someday in the future that I would be coming and that they would embrace me and bring me into their lineage, even though it was considered taboo. 
Um, so for those who don't understand, I was just deep in meditation. And instead of having like a spontaneous experience or silence or Satori or something like that, I just would receive these messages kind of like from the the field of consciousness. And it would be very directive and, and telling me, um, you know, where I would go and who I would meet. And ultimately it always came true. So that was kind of how I got there. I was told just to, um, you know, backpack around and that kind of, that was my, my way of going around. And I was looking for these teachers that were actually waiting for me. So I didn't know what I was getting myself into, what I would be learning. Uh, I knew it had something to do with medicinal plants. I wasn't specifically interested in visionary plants. I wasn't interested in being a quote unquote healer or a shaman. That was not the focus. I just was uh, told that there was an apprenticeship and this learning that was needed. And so I was kind of sent in that direction. And then, um, you know, the visions in the first ceremony were just so palpable and overwhelming that, um, and and the clear visions at the end of the ceremony, I mean, the first four hours were like survival, but at the end of it, about five hour five to hour six of it was this great opening of sort of celebration that I had arrived in the location where I needed to be, which is, I think, the most interesting part of the story uh, for me, because it was so remote and it was so far away from anybody else. It was very hard to believe that that could be the location where you would go literally upriver from where I was. There were no permanent inhabitants for days travel. So this was like a pocket of truly uninhabited forest. And it was uh, the location where I was drinking in that first ceremony was about 500 meters from like one of the greatest mystic elders of that whole region. And one of the last sacred wisdom keepers of a whole series of generations that have now died off. And so it was right at this time when the real ancestral knowledge was was dying off and they didn't have anybody to be able to pass it on to. And then I was guided directly to there. And ultimately, over the next year and a half, accepted by the elder to uh, study and then brought into the formal apprenticeship. And so that was really amazing to be there in that location. And then ultimately, that was where I needed to be. It was a, a tiny tributary, uh, about 30, 40 yards wide um, to uh, one of the feeder rivers that becomes the Amazon. And we were in a good half an hour to 45 minutes past the last, uh, you know, full-blooded native uh, tribal community. And then there was about eight, 10 families that just lived on the river. And it was a very small community. And I ended up becoming the 10th family head of that community. I was voted into the community, um, you know, had to petition. It had to be a unanimous vote to let me live there. And then I was uh, granted a piece of land to live on, which would ultimately be where I was able to put my house and my agricultural plot. And then I was able to live there, like I said, for about four and a half years to be able to study with the elder. When you arrived, were you just wearing jeans and a t-shirt and, and sneakers and have it, had some stuff on your back? Or were you, and, and were they wearing uh, jeans and t-shirts or loincloths? Or I, I hope I don't sound too naive or. No, those are good questions. I mean, the, the native tribe had a mixture of everything, but these guys were um, sort of like pioneers. They lived beyond the, the tribe. Some of, they were all mixed bloods of, of you know, many different tribes and, and races and sort of in general considered Peruvian. Um, they wore Western clothes, but uh, not exactly like the way you would put together an outfit. You know, it's kind of like the clothes they had and uh, mostly just like either shorts or pants and a shirt of some kind. Um, they're not really like jeans and a T-shirt kind of people, but uh, just sort of, you know, kind of like what, what they had to wear. Uh, everyone got around on foot or by canoe. There were no roads. Um, there were just footpaths and game trails. 
And like I say, everyone lived off the land, built their own houses, et cetera. And when you say family head, do, do you have kids there or did you like connect deeply and intimately or I mean, did you create roots? No, I mean, I no. I, as a as a what they mean by a family head is a morador or a person who's allowed to live there. So you sign in a book with them that you're part of the community. And so I could have, I mean, I could have stayed there. I could have ultimately put roots down. Um, but after about four years, I knew it was ultimately time for me to go. Things were expanding tremendously with the medicinal plant work that we were doing and the service that we were providing other people, both locals and native, uh, locals and uh, international people. And it was no longer really safe to take people out to that part of the forest. It was just so remote. And so as the size of the groups got bigger, the logistics around it got much more difficult. And um, ultimately, I needed to find a place closer to the city of Iquitos. So I ended up acquiring a piece of land in 2005 and building a huge facility on it to to really support the sharing of Amazonian plant medicine with what was then, you know, a growing international community. How many, does everyone there do ayahuasca? Is that like a rite of passage or is it a rare thing there too? Or is it common? No, it's considered a plant medicine. So if you don't have a reason like an illness to take that medicine, they don't prescribe it. The, the medico vegetalistas are doctors of plants. And you kind of have to think that this is pre-Western medicine. So these are tribes that had also split off into small communities and uh, they don't have any kind of Western medicine. There's literally no big pharma. There are no pills, et cetera. So the people who have the knowledge of the forest itself, both in terms of its you know use as building materials, energy source, et cetera, have that knowledge. And the doctors of the forest have the knowledge of the plants and how to use them as medicines. And so uh, also different kinds of animals and stuff like that too. But basically it's the natural compounds that they can extract from the forest um, that end up becoming a base for their medicines. And they know hundreds of medicinal plants. Ayahuasca is just one. And I think, you you know, maybe in like a, a medico vegetalista's normal practice, he might use it maybe 5% of the time. It's not as ubiquitously used as it's described in the Western world as sort of a cure-all. That's uh, not exactly accurate. It's really more like if you have needs for the use of it, then it would be prescribed. Um, often the people who are practitioners will use ayahuasca to diagnose because when you're in a visionary state, you can be very receptive to uh, and very open to understanding and diagnosing the illnesses that somebody has. So sometimes a patient would be in the ceremony itself without drinking ayahuasca. And the the ayahuasca or the medico vegetalista will drink ayahuasca as part of their normal practice and then look at the person to be able to see sort of like an extraordinary imaging capacity to understand what's going on inside them because they don't have MRIs, CAT scans, x-rays, you know, et cetera. So they use the visionary state to diagnose. But really, it's if you have uh, a trauma, if you have um, something that has gone wrong with your ener energy, like you yourself don't feel right, like you don't feel like yourself you feel down, um, you've had a big accident, maybe you've broken a limb and you've you healed the limb, but you don't feel like you've gotten over that experience. Then they use ayahuasca and then they also use it for psychomagical or very extraordinary illnesses that they just can't explain. So psychosomatic illness, extreme mental illness, et cetera, those kinds of, uh, they, they more describe those illnesses in, in a mythology that they have. So it's hard to translate that mythology into kind of a Western rational way of thinking. And so they just think something's gone wrong with your spirit. That's what they say. Like, oh, something's gone wrong with your spirit. But um, 
I ultimately found out that that concept was the first bridge to a scientific discovery that we made, which was that in their normal spoken language, they don't have language for PTSD, depression, anxiety, and addiction. They just don't have it. They're, they're, the locals don't have those terms. And so I started to look why. I, I first wanted to see, is it because they don't have the experiences that cause it? And on the contrary, in the Amazon and the jungle, there's a lot of experiences that could cause all sorts of sort of precursors to those experiences. But what I found out is that instead of, you know, the going into depression or anxiety or those kinds of fears, they intervene with ayahuasca and provide a kind of healing service to the people that then um, ends the the need to, uh, you know, or ends the need of healing and also ends the movement into depression and anxiety, addiction, et cetera. I would guess that not only ayahuasca would do that, but also those things are contributed to by isolation and a lot of what we have here in the West of, of disconnect from nature. I mean, this is one of the things that, that um, I mean, I've done visionary medicine, I guess. I don't know. I mean, uh, psychedelics in the past. And I did a podcast episode on this a long time ago about how when I eat regular food now, and I grew up eating standard Western diet of mostly packaged stuff and not a whole lot of, I mean, my share of fresh fruits and vegetables, but never just fresh fruits and vegetables. And now that that's the case. And I'm not, it's still very limited in the sense of I'm getting, I mean, I'm getting what's at the farmer's market, but it's not in the jungle. And it's not like freshly picked by me. Nonetheless, when I eat now, I feel, I don't know how to describe it. It's not like a euphoria, but it's definitely, I mean, the way I think about it is that if you take, um, uh, like I've never chewed coca leaf, but my understanding is that if you, that they refine out cocaine and make the a super intense high or crack, I guess. Uh, but if you chew the leaf, you probably get it over a longer period of time. And I think something happens similar. Like if you take, if you find out the sugar from stuff and just take a bunch of sugar, you'll get a high, not quite as intense, I would guess as legal. But I think by eating raw, not always raw, sometimes cooked, but like, if I really pay attention it's like a different feeling. And also just going out of nature. Oh man. Uh, do you ever listen to Sam Harris podcast? A little bit. Yeah, I have. He talks, I mean, he talks a lot about psychedelics and he, he had a guest on who was um, a guy at Johns Hopkins who's, there's a, they're studying it there in a Western way a lot. And they talked about how they did some survey of people who were, went through a, a psilocybin. And I'm sorry if I'm convolving a lot of things that are very different. I, from my perspective, I, I'm, uh, I didn't spend four years in Peru, mm -hmm. uh, but the guy talked about how people who went through the psilocybin experience with people walking them through it in a, in a, um, with set and setting all set, they described it as like most of them, many of them described it as like one of the top five experiences of their lives. And mm -hmm. when they talked about it, it was like this very mystical, meaningful experience on this podcast. I ask a lot of people what the environment means to them. And usually the first answer is like what they read about in the papers about how everything's going and falling apart, but that's not their experience of nature. That's their experience reading about, some scientific predictions, their actual experiences when they feel comfortable sharing them are really touching. And often something like in the top five, I mean, the psilocybin were top five experiences of their life up there with having the birth of their first child. But I get, I hear people talk a lot about that too. 
maybe not quite that intense, but also multiple times. And I've started to feel like, you know, a hundred years ago, I think probably almost everyone who lived had access to walk along the beach in the forest to a mountaintop in solitude if they wanted, no planes overhead, no sirens blaring, no cars somewhere. No, if they wanted it, they had access to nature in solitude or with people if they wanted. And nowadays, I mean, billions of us, billions of people in favelas and slums have no access to nature at all. But even those of us in rich places like the United States often don't have access to that. And I don't think we know what we're missing. And I think that even a minimum contact with nature, just walking among in a park, if you have the right attitude, but better if you're, if you can get away from, I don't, I don't remember the last time I was somewhere where I couldn't hear any cars or see any airplanes or see remnants of someone dropped some litter there. That it wasn't somehow curated for people to be there. So I feel like a lot of what we here seek through other experiences used to be a birthright. Used to be, you couldn't help but have some experience of those because what I'm getting, I'm, I'm presuming that what I'm getting, if it's if it's not just in my head, uh, a placebo, that that was that that's small compared to what people had all the time. So, yeah. I would, I have this feeling that if there's less PTSD, less anxiety, less addiction, I would bet it's also or none if they don't have words for it. I would bet it's also because they have more support, they have more connection with nature, even if it's not as intense as, as ayahuasca. I, I haven't said that to anyone. I, I don't think I've said that in, in, on the podcast. I'm curious, you brought it out of me. How does that sound from your perspective? Well, first of all, like, I think we have to understand what are our technologies and what are we using to separate us from the idea of nature? So fundamentally, we are nature. Like the, we can live inside a city, but it doesn't change the fact that we're a cellular molecular being just like a tree is a cellular molecular being or another mammal is. So I think we've, we've separated ourselves ideologically and we've tried to separate ourselves physically. And when you describe the environment and airplanes and cars, to me, that's just man and his machines. Like for the majority of human evolution and human existence, man hasn't had machines to be able to be fixated on and concerned with. And so man lived off of nature as nature, part of nature. And just because we've created machines and our own mind has evolved in terms of technology over time, it doesn't mean that that fundamental nature is no longer part of us. It still is part of us. And I think what you're describing is what happens when you feel connected with nature. And when you move beyond this experience of separation and sort of, uh, you know, the creation of, of, cities and suburbia where, where we terraform and we change fundamentally what, what the ground is and we change what plants are there and we, we swipe everything away and then we replace it all with something that's been engineered and architected. But when you actually experience nature itself, you live in a natural harmony and a balance with it. Your body goes immediately into a natural harmony. Your metabolism does the same. Your mindset does the same. And nature, instead of being presented as something that's scary and something that you need to be protected from when you go into it, actually becomes like a, a huge cocoon or a womb that's supporting you and supporting life. And so the people there aren't scared of nature. 
they're fully in tune with it and they're fully in balance with it. And when you live like that, I think you're more receptive to your own neurotransmitters and your your own sort of, you know, happy juice inside your brain. Your your brain and your body fundamentally work better. When you're not surrounded by petrochemicals all the time, your brain and your body work better. When you're breathing air that's that's being charged all the time by the plants and giving off more oxygen and you're you're experiencing that, you fundamentally feel better. And I think that that kind of balance is just innate and it's natural. You know, and then if you come and you drink something like ayahuasca, well, that's something that's very acute and it's an intervention and there's a reason for it. That's what I mean by when I say it's a medicine. What's it like if you can compare? I had Alan Herrera on who lived among the Kogi for a while in modern day Colombia. And he described when he comes back to London, he's British, that um, he has to turn his senses off partly because there's an overload of everything trying to get his attention. I mean, there's not more photons hitting his eyes or more sound waves hitting his ears. The other thing is that there's all this pollution and it smells bad. And he's used to sitting in chairs, but when he's with them, he doesn't sit in a chair and he gets used to it. More. Anyway, the, the difference, he's like, it, it's palpable and, and he's much more calm when he's there. Can you characterize the difference between life there and life here? Is it easy to characterize or is it too much to, to say or is it not that much of a difference? No, there's a huge difference. There's a huge when you live in the forest versus the cities. And, you know, you also have to put it in context that nearer this part of the forest, there is a 500,000 person city. So, you know, I was about 24 hours by travel overland away from it, but you could go to the city if you needed to. And in the city, it's chaos. And so it's it's abrupt and you get you get hit with it. The energy of the city is completely different. It runs on a different series of patterns. But there, like you say, there isn't a difference in terms of the amount of photons or the amount of sound waves. It's the kind of photons and it's the kind of sound waves. It's the information that it's representing and giving off and the rationale behind it. Nature is its own algorithm. Nature lives in this fractaling, growing pattern of what I call ever-churn. It's an ever-churning of life. The forest grows out of the forest that's decomposing. And it's 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 massive. It's this massive biosphere. And when you're in it, it has its own rhythm. And your body has a natural way to be able to go back into that rhythm. And then when you come into the cities, the cities are all running on clocks. And one of the things that I really noticed was that the clock was a human-created technology to measure time, even though it's described as the time. But it's not really the time. The time is uh, something vaster. It's a dimensionality. In physics, it's described as, and in mathematics, it's described as a dimensionality or the fourth dimension. And it's just called time. It's sort of the permanence of the universe itself. And the clock is this very regimented form of technology that's used to measure that permanence. And most people don't understand that the seconds of a clock are actually rhythms. And the clock moves at 60 beats per minute or 60 seconds. And there's nothing innate about us that moves at 60 beats per minute other than this technology that we created. And when you go into the forest, the very first thing that starts to happen is you forget what time it is. You forget what day it is. And you go into a, a natural flow of, of just time in the forest itself. And um, that's very, very balancing. And then the forest moves on its own cycles, which is, you know, when uh, sort of dusk and then daybreak and then what is night and what is day and there's these four trans these four real distinct experiences throughout the day there's the daytime there's dusk there's nighttime and then there's the dusk again in the sunrise and the forest has a completely different vibe there are different animals there's a different energy uh, it's palpable to everybody that's there um, 
And so as it goes through those cycles, you become naturally attuned to those cycles. And then like what you were mentioning, you know, the fruits and the vegetables and the foods and stuff like that, that you grow yourself and that you're in harmony with, that you are sustaining from, you feel this really deep connection, not just to your own productivity, but to the productivity of the land, the productivity of nature itself, and you're in harmony with it. And it literally makes your body. If you think you are the food that you eat, it literally becomes your body and you become part of that cycle of life. And it's innately balancing. When they, when the people you live with there look at the 500,000 person city, and I presume they have images and, and uh, videos maybe of, of North America and America, Americans living, how do they look at us? Because, I mean, a predominant view here is, um, especially among people who want to promote fossil fuel use, is, look, a lot of people in this world, they say to me, you know, there's all these people who are living on under a dollar a day, and they deserve to live like us. It's, it's our, we can't hold them back. It's, they should be able to get solar panels so that they can get their, so, so they can use um, cell phones and so that they can read at night. And we should bring them schools. Uh, it's not fair for us to hold them back from going through fossil fuel use and, and developing their economies like us. Are they, what's their perspective? Are they feeling held back from, from being like us? Do they want to uh, climb the ladder of, of energy use and have cars? It's certainly in some ways in the last 20 years has been a tremendous encroachment, but I mean, what they really see is stuff. They just see things. And we naturally like different kinds of shiny, really what seem like interesting things. And the consequences of those things are not really described. And so they see the technologies coming in from the West that make quote unquote life easier. And some of those are, are very supportive, like chainsaws but then they don't see the destruction that the chainsaws are causing absolutely everywhere. They just think like, wow, I can, you know, make support poles for my house easier. And so they don't see the entire exportation and the international lumber business, you know, so it's very isolated in the mindset. Um, I think there's a balance though. Fundamentally, I think a great conversation I had was early on in my time there when I was told by them that they were so poor because they didn't have a lot of coin based money. So they didn't have a lot of like paper money. And I said, okay, describe to me what you have. And they said, well, I have land. This is my land. And I said, okay, how big's your land? And it's, it's literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of hectares. It's literally square miles of land, of untouched forest. Right? That forest is filled with, and they own it. They own it outright. It's filled with unbelievable commodities that the Western world would want. Right? So it's worth, it's worth on paper hundreds of millions of dollars, but there's no market for it. Right. So they have this, they start with this land and they say, well, that's over there, my agricultural plot. They go, well, how big is it? And I go, who is it for? I go, well, it's for my family. I said, well, how big is it? It's anywhere from five to 10 acres. And then they have another one and another one and another one. They rotate the, the farms. And so I said, okay, what does it produce? And they listed off, you know, 50 to 100 different kinds of, of edible foods and all these different kinds of fruits and all these amazing things. And then, then I say, okay, what, what do you have over there? They go, oh, those are orchards. And they say, they say, yeah, we planted them when we first got here. I go, how did you plant them? They go, oh, we just threw the seeds out. And now there are all the breadfruit trees and there are all the umari trees. And umari is like a, a, a tree that basically makes like a natural butter. It's unbelievably high in, in natural oils. And then there's all the palm trees. And then there's all of the, 
you know, like mango trees and stuff. It's just endless, it's endless what they have. And I said, and then they go, there's the river. And I go, what can you fish from the river? They said, well, you know, in an hour, you can get enough fish for a family of 12. Like just every day, you can just go there and it's it's nothing because they haven't overfished the, the land. And so, so they're telling me all these things that they had, that if you actually offered that to a Western person, that Western person would go from, you know, living a difficult job in an apartment or in a condo or a small house for majority of people that live, not the uber wealthy, but the majority of people. And you would actually see that these people in the Amazon had way more things. I mean, they had so much more actual, physical, tangible wealth than what the person living in the apartment has who has a car and uses it basically to commute and go to the store and buy food, uh, you know, to, to live off of. And so when I was confronted with that in my early 20s, and I grew up in Silicon Valley, which was, you know, the burgeoning place of extreme greed and wealth, it was confronting because I had to think to myself, wow, as a, as a person in my early 20s, I couldn't afford anything in Silicon Valley. And down here, I actually can have a house and I can have my own transportation and I can I can have my own life and I can live literally off the land and I hardly need any kind of money. And so it was this big discrepancy in terms of understanding wealth at that time and uh, just perception. And I realized wealth was truly an ideology. I want to read you a quote that I have in the I've done a bunch of blog posts on a book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels by a guy named Alex Epstein. And he wrote one crucial truth. And by the way, I come across the, the sentiment in a lot of places. So this is a quote I may put in my book. He says, one crucial truth is that climate is naturally volatile and dangerous. Absent a modern developed civilization, any climate will frequently overwhelm human beings with climate related risks, extreme heat, extreme cold, storms, floods, or underwhelm human beings with climate-related benefits, insufficient rainfall, insufficient warmth. Primitive peoples prayed so fervently to climate gods because they were almost totally at the mercy of the naturally volatile, dangerous climate system. How would, how would that sound to them? It's not, not factual. I mean, they would just look at that and say, what are you talking about? <laughs> Yeah, literally, what are you describing? Like, that's not their living experience. It's just not factual. Is it fair to say that, I mean, it seems to me like they're living in a world of abundance, like like abundance beyond what I'm used to. And it seems to me like people look at them and think they're living in scarcity and in danger, maybe because they don't have the coin or maybe because they don't, I don't know. But they're not in danger. Do they feel like they're in a dangerous environment? Are they in a dangerous environment? Could they get eaten by a leopard? Yes and no. I mean, you are part of the food chain there, but the people know how to live in harmony with that aspect of life itself. I think driving on a freeway every day is much more dangerous. So the idea of, of you know, our concepts of danger versus their concepts of danger, they don't treat their environment as if it's a dangerous thing. Fundamentally, there's no one who's scared of the environment there. Nor are they scared of the climate, but they also don't have natural disasters there. Uh, but they're not scared of a tree falling on them, and the trees fall all the time because they know how to read the forest. So they know if a tree is going to fall down and whether they're in an appropriate place to walk around that tree or not. So, you know, you learn how to be able to manage and move through your environment the way that you would expect if you were truly an expert of that environment. Like you might be an expert of a city. They wouldn't know how to get around a city at all. They'd be lost all the time but they know how to get through a forest. They know how to navigate a forest without any kind of compass or GPS. 
You have no, no idea how they navigate the forest. They just walk through the forest and they'll be like, oh yeah, we're going to end up at this, you know, these lagoons in seven hours hike. And you get there in seven hours on the dot and, you know, and there they are at the lagoons. I'm, I'm lost. I'm lost in, you know, in, in quarter mile, half mile from where I walked. And they're like, oh, you can't read the sun. You don't know how the sun tells you where you are and where to go. It's just a completely different understanding. So they wouldn't agree with, you know, that kind of a quote. They just wouldn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> they wouldn't. Sorry, I can't help but laugh, but also remark on, on they wouldn't know what you're talking about. Because to me, it may, like, I don't agree with it, but it totally, it makes total sense. I can see why he would feel that way. Did you feel, were you scared when you got there? And, and did you, by the end of the, of the years, pick up some of the skills? Yeah. Or do you have to learn it as a baby? or Oh, you learn over. I mean, one of the, the greatest gifts was that I got a, a second childhood in my early 20s. Because I to learn, I just told everybody there, like, I had humility about it. I had no idea what I was doing, right? And I wanted to survive. So I just said, like, you know, teach me, like, how you would teach a kid who's, like, two or three years old. And there were, you know, kids around who were two or three years old. And they're like, well, the way the way you teach them is that the four and five-year-olds teach them. And then the seven and eight-year-olds teach the four and five-year-olds. And the nine and ten-year-olds teach the seven and eight-year-olds. And it goes all the way up to the grandparents who are sitting around. So they just sort of, like, fall in line, you know? So it's just you get in a canoe, you're going to fall out, you know, hey, be careful in that kind of water, that kind of water, there could be a stingray or an electric eel, but not where there's running water. So, so okay, you know, go bathe where there's running water, don't go where the water's stagnant over there. Um, you know, look out for these kinds of movements, and then you start to recognize the patterns and you start to see. So at first, I was scared um, a little bit, you know, because you're just not really sure. Uh, whether there's a poisonous snake or a poisonous spider or what would happen if all the what ifs that would, you know, typically terrify us. But ultimately, I came to understand that I was one with nature and that nature was actually providing me a tremendous amount of safety. And what was really much more dangerous was my Western life than, than the life that I had in the forest. I would be after these these ayahuasca ceremonies, I would still be in this visionary state and I would just go dive into the river naked and swimming around in the river. And there were giant anacondas and uh, uh, piranhas and stingrays and electric eels in the river. And I was just swimming in it happy as can be, you know, naked, one with nature and, and feeling connected to it. And I, I asked in that sort of a visionary and trance state to the, to the animals that were there. I said, like, are you going to eat me? And they just said, no, you love us. Why would we eat you? <laughs> They're like, we're going to protect you. We're not here to harm you. We're here to protect you. You're not our food. And so uh, it was very comforting. And I honestly, in 20 plus years there, I've never once had a problem in the nature of any kind, literally never. I was even I was even bitten by a poisonous spider once and I was healed out there without any kind of Western medicine. So I haven't had any problem. And were they watching you, the, the people, to make sure that you didn't make a mistake um, in when you're in the visionary state and swimming around naked or were you just on your own? <laughs> no, it was totally on my own. They're like, ah, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. No, no one was like watching me or anything like that. No, they're like, if you want to live out here, like we all live. It's not like they all watch each other in fear. There's no fear. Everyone's just completely calm going about their day. Everyone has their chores and tasks that they do. Everyone in the afternoon gets together and hangs out and talks and socializes. Everyone then, you know, goes to bed with the sunset. Maybe they stay up for a couple hours chatting and then you know, it's time to go to bed. Then everyone wakes up in the morning again and everyone has their chores for that day. And no one's overworked. No one's overstressed. No one's, you know, riddled with anxiety. No one's freaked out about, uh, you know, unforeseen things. It just, it's not part of them. 
Now, if I describe something like that to someone not having been there, just guessing at it, people would say, Josh, don't you know there's this myth of the noble savage? And you're just thinking that you're projecting onto them some fantasy of yours was, but you're not describing something, you're just describing what you saw with your eyes and what you lived with for four years, four and a half years? Yeah, four and a half years. I was, I was fully in the forest like that. Oops, sorry. And then, uh, and then I've spent, yeah, 20 years in the, you know, the whole area, but fully deep in the forest like that, completely, um, you know, beyond connection with really kind of any kind of civilization. I was there for four and a half years. Uh, you know, there is no nobility to the savage. The local people are not noble in that sense. That's foolish to think that way. They have all the same jealousies and interpersonal problems and some families thieve from other ones and uh, some vandalism takes place and there's there's negativity of all different kinds. To, so to think that, you know, there's family disputes all the time, they, they'd like to create some drama. So to think that they're living in this like noble savage myth is is completely wrong. That's not the vibe of it at all. But we're, you know, focusing this aspect of the conversation on their relationship with nature and not not on their interpersonal problems or, you know, their rationale for needing healing of different kinds or the different plant medicines that they have, et cetera. Oh, well, now you have me curious about conflict resolution and, and um, government is how do they because I, I, I don't know if you read. Did you read The Dawn of Everything? It made a big impression on me. I haven't read it. No. So it's this book and it talks about, um, well, that there are a lot of ways that people developed. I don't know how to put it. Different ways of working together. It wasn't just one like in, uh, agricultural revolution happened here and spread everywhere. It happened here and then reverted and what happened there in a different way and happened there in a different way. And it was, there's a whole wealth of, of uncountable numbers of ways over many different places, many different ways. And if we think that it just happened, anyway, what happened? Did they have a government? Did they have um, representatives and, and ways of resolving conflict when, if they came up? Yeah, for sure. You know, there's two two different populations there. There's the tribal population, and then there's the like the people who just live out there and they have their small community, and they don't really believe so much in external judicial support. So they kind of take care of everything themselves, you know. But you also have to understand that out there, you could very easily just disappear. And so I called it the law of the shotgun, and that means everybody has one, and everybody's really calm about it because. It's not like there's a lot of other witnesses going on around what's happening. So like, for instance, you're going up river and you're, you're the guy's coming down river in his canoe and you don't really know each other. Well, you guys both know you're completely armed. And so there's kind of deference on both sides and they're just kind of paddling along, keep their heads down. And then if they're friendly, they look up and, you know, say hi to each other. And you kind of get to know each other from afar until you're introduced and little by little you come and you actually become really great friends. Then if it's like that, if they know each other and stuff, then they'll bring the canoes right up. But no one escalates problems like you see in the West where there's this external support where you could cry foul and you go try to get some help and they have these like major escalations and problems. It just never happens there. Literally never. Like between people, there won't be that escalation in terms of, um, you know, if there's theft and it's proven, there's a reparation that takes place. There's a repayment of the theft and the damages that are done. If there's, um, you know, kind of... Uh, bigger crime, like what we would think of as greater crime, the locals take the law enforcement into their own hands. 
And so when I was there, it didn't happen. There were stories about it, but that's where you get stories of, you know, people would disappear or just, well, never heard of them again. They were a real problem. So there's some, you know, understandings like that. And obviously you don't want to be in that category. <laughs> so, so, you know, it kind of makes you very aware of where you are in the community and how you're being represented. And then in terms of the collective work and stuff like that, how, how the work gets broken up, every family lives on their own, but there is a collective and then the collective works together. And typically there's like a feast and a big party associated with that. So instead of money being exchanged, there's a great experience that's exchanged. So for instance, like if you're going to create an agricultural plot, that's the most work there really is because you got to clear the forest. So the forest is very dense. It's very difficult to clear the forest. And so um, during that period of time in the forest clearing, they have an experience called a minga. And a minga is sort of like a big group work effort to you know, support each family head in having their own agricultural plot. So there will be a, a period of time in the year when they all go and clear forest over a couple of months for each family. And while they're doing that, every single day, there's a huge feast. Now, what I thought was unbelievably amazing is that they all work completely drunk. Like they make this, <laughs> they make this, yeah, yeah, completely. So they're swinging axes and machetes and they are as drunk as it gets. Like they, they make this uh, alcoholic beverage called masato and it's either made from corn or manioc um, and it's grated or they also have local palm fruits that they'll use some called pifayo that they use. They'll, they grate it up. This is where you see in the documentaries where like the people are chewing it and spitting it into the pots. That's sort of the, the old way to get the fermentation going. The new way is to just use some sugar from sugarcane that they'll make themselves. They call it chankaka. They'll grow sugarcane and they'll just put that in the pot. They don't do the chewing so much anymore. Um, and then it ferments and it ferments into a beer and then they drink it, but it's very thick, right? They don't filter it and, you know, carbonate it, et cetera. So it's this fermented mash and they drink the mash and basically eat the mash. So it's kind of like a porridge. And so it fills them up and also, you know, takes their mind off the heat and the work itself. So they have experiences like that. And I got to participate in those. It's quite exciting time. It's a pretty wild experience. Yeah. If you're going to talk about drinking, getting drunk, I got to ask about, are there parties? How about sex and, and, and intimate relations? I don't know if you can share about that. And, you know, actually, I was watching this documentary of, of Bill Benenson, who was on this podcast, and his wife, Lori, who, whom I've met. She we didn't record with her and the arts and the culture of song dance uh the fashion and clothing was intimate it was in, in everything they did all the time and i asked them about like when they would get together and sing because there were scenes of them singing and if, if people sang like that here it would be this amazing show that you knew that they took years and years to practice to perform and that's what that's what part of, I mean, I, they're not watching YouTube. They're not like watching TV. And, and so I, I guess that's what they're doing. Are they bored there? Do they need social media to distract them from other things? What do they do for fun and culture and things like that? Oh, is that part of it? Sure, sure. They have, you know, they're really what you think of as a really quite normal life in that sense. They, uh, in their teen years, they end up having boyfriends and girlfriends. They typically, those relationships typically don't sustain. They end up getting married in their 20s. Those relationships have a better chance of sustaining. Um, then there's, you know, multi-generational households. So it's not uncommon to see great-great-grandparents all the way down to the great-great-grandchildren in the same family, you know. And so um, 
they they have fun. They just they just have fun. I don't know. They they will dance if they want to. If they have parties, they'll make music. Um, sometimes they have you know electronic generated music for bigger parties. They'll kind of go somewhere, or they'll have uh, to go to like a local town that might have that, or they'll bring it to their own town if they have the capacity for it. But most of the time, they'll make music on their own. Um, you know, just simple music. Uh, drums and rhythms and stuff like that, or they'll bring in Western instruments that they've learned how to play. Um, they they have a what I would think of as a pretty normal life in that sense. There's uh, in the evenings typically there's just conversation and hanging out. There's some game playing. They love to play different kinds of card games and things like that that they've learned. And so uh, you know the kids the kids are incredibly creative. They make toys out of everything. So they play with toys and they make them all themselves. So, you know, there's no store to go buy toys in and things like that. So they just take stuff from nature and they they make it. And they also learn how to use their tools that way. So they learn how to whittle and they learn how to, um, you know, make like knife handles or axe handles, et cetera. Um, and so they're just super creative in that sense. They have really big imagination. They have this incredible living mythology. So they're not as so rational that they have to be uh, taken out of that rational mind into, you know, like a movie they're like kind of like living in their own movie all the time. And so it's just their reality to them. So it's very imaginative. They tell stories. They talk about what's going on. They transfer the knowledge from one generation to the next about how to be able to live out there. And they have stories about everything. So people want to know, like, well, how do they understand history? It's all stories. That's all these mythological stories that that carry the meaning and understanding for everybody between why one plant might be poisonous and one plant is a medicine and uh, one animal, you know, has one kind of behavior and represents one aspect of archetypes and psyche for them and their psychology. And another animal has a different one. They have all these jokes and they they have an incredible sense of humor. They make jokes up about absolutely everything. And their sexuality is actually unbelievably balanced. Their gender concepts, unbelievably balanced. It's not stigmatized in any kind of way. It's just completely normal. It's a natural biological part of life that they're in complete harmony with. Uh, they joke about it all the time. They think it's completely hilarious. So they have like an unbelievable number of sort of what we think of as dirty jokes and stuff like that. They just think it's super funny. And they all have, uh, you know, very, I would say in that sense, like a very balanced life. It's not perfect by any means. And there's obviously all sorts of conflict and problems that come from the relationships. But they also don't have the stigma around separation and divorce. You can, you know, split up if you want to. And uh, so a lot of the hangups that we have, they just don't have. It's like a, a much simpler way of approaching life in general. I'm just catching myself. I, uh, you know, I've just been asking questions out of my own curiosity and selfish curiosity. I hope that I hope it hasn't been too much of me. Like, just what about this? What about this? What about this? Is there anything that I haven't asked that you want to? That is from your perspective. And also, last time we spoke, it was much more about changing culture here and us. I don't know if you want to switch to that. We can. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the most important thing is, you know, as this, as the culture is being um, both bombarded by the Western side, which is happening and the culture is changing really fast. So the lifestyle that I'm describing probably doesn't even exist anymore in 20 years. So now you might find people out there with cell phones and you might find people out there with all different kinds of electronic devices and things. It's spread very, very, very quickly. So I think, I think an important thing in that transition is to understand that what we're talking about and the speed of Western encroachment is so fast and so violent that what we're describing may already be gone. And um, 
I think one of the things that we tried to do was preserve at least the culture around their medicinal practices, because that was sustainable and something that people from around the world were really interested in and could benefit from. And, um, you know, the preservation of these understandings about culture is really important because we come from an idea of cultural dominance that we're somehow right. And we somehow have, have the you know answer to everything when we don't. And there's a lot to still learn from these other people and the way that they live, especially the balance and harmony that they understand with nature itself. And that to understand that there's a lot more going on in nature than we typically understand is very important because that's our origin as well. So this origin of nature is really important to us. And to understand that these other cultures are, are being dramatically transitioned and rapidly transitioned to a kind of extreme poverty, I think is something that needs to be understood. And it's not just save the Amazon in terms of deforestation, but it's save the Amazon in terms of the lifestyle of the people that is being uh, fundamentally destroyed at a pace faster than the Amazon itself. To me, it feels there's not destroying them. There's also perhaps we could approach them with a bit of humility and learn from them the amount that we want to teach them, what if we reverse that? If we wanted to learn from them that much? I think people here feel like there's nothing we can learn from them because they're primitive. And I think people wouldn't say it, but I think people think, well, they're stupid. They just haven't learned what we have or maybe ignorant. I remember I came across some quote a long time ago. When you move from an agri, moving from a um, uh, hunter-gatherer society to an agricultural society, and then from an agricultural society to an industrial society, the loss in knowledge of nature is is like precipitous. That we don't, we've lost it. We don't know what we, we don't even know what we've lost. Well, most people go on a hike. They don't go on a walk through the forest, right? And a hike is a thing where you're in your mind, talking with your friend, getting some exercise. And if you stopped and said, you know, what is that mineral? They wouldn't know typically unless they're a geologist. And then I'd say, well, what is that plant? And they wouldn't know unless they had actually studied them. And then what are all those flowers? And not only that, not just their scientific name, but what are they actually used for? Like the people that I, I worked with and, and lived with and learned from, like when you said, what would happen if we went there and asked? That's what I did. I went there and asked them to teach me. And I went there and asked them to share with me their knowledge. And what I found was that they had a vast understanding with much deeper sophistication than anything I could even relate to. And I thought one of the funniest things um, when I first worked in the visionary ceremonies was I would get in there and I'd be thrown around like a rag doll. And now I was a straight A student. I was a person who could sit down and study for 12 hours a day and go take a test and go get an A on that test and then do it again and again and again. I would get into these ceremonies and into these sessions with ayahuasca and I'd be like, I say, thrown around. And I finally asked the elder, why was that happening to me? And he says, oh, you don't know how to concentrate. Like they never, your culture never, your people never taught you to concentrate. I thought, what is he talking about? Because I could sit down and concentrate on schoolwork. And he was talking about literally a different use of the brain, a different use of the mind, and a different use of consciousness than what I had been told concentration was. It took me about two years to learn what he was actually talking about, to actually create that inside my own brain. And it was, uh, you know, akin to a kind of capacity to quiet the brain and to create a focal point that literally wasn't there beforehand. And so to think that we have all the answers is actually a, a kind of arrogance when we don't even know what we've lost in terms of our very own capacity with our very own brains. We've become, uh, you know, habituated to a single competition around a certain kind of linguistics 
that has been broken into a variety of different kinds of subjects and different forms of study. And we've been told that's the only way that we operate and that's the only way we understand and learn. When in fact, there were other people around the world who literally had different minds, literally had different brains, and some of their capacities were far superior to ours. You described that ayahuasca is used medicinally. What was the prognosis that led to them, you using it? Well, you either use it medicinally or you're called to be a practitioner. And I was called to be a practitioner, which is where you then go through their equivalent of med school which is part med school and then part Navy SEAL training. They kind of do both at the same time. So they're like, okay, the Navy SEAL training side of it is how we're going to make sure you're tough enough to be able to survive this. And then they do, it's basically like survival school for years and your survival gets tested. And then there's the medicinal side, which is now with that knowledge and the capacity to be able to confront everything that happens for the tribal society, in terms of you know the needs of medicines and also guidance and direction, uh, also on a like political level, the guidance and direction, uh, you know, which is kind of a very high role in their society. Then you you're ready to be able to now practice that medicine for everybody else. So there's this very long apprenticeship to where you're then allowed to practice on your own, and it's equivalent to Western medical education. It takes you anywhere from five to 10 years to be able to be sort of a general practitioner and then another five to 10 years, maybe even 15 years more to being a true specialist of various specialties of, of practice. So they're the only people in the Amazon who actually drink ayahuasca on a, a continuous basis. Um, unless you're in a tribal society where they have different kinds of ayahuasca and they use them with the tribe for other reasons, but the kind that people talk about that are visionary or hallucinatory and are used in these acute inter healing interventions or for spiritual development that you see in the West, uh, that kind of practice, the only people who do it on a regular basis are the people that are trained as facilitator practitioners. Now I'm going to make a big leap to last time. There's, and some if it's too big of a leap or if, if we left something behind that's worth bringing up. The, I remember I said to you how I was, I wanted to change culture and I forget exactly how I put it. And you immediately responded. Most people respond with, how's that going to scale? How are you going to make that happen? And you immediately responded with, well, then that's, that means people have to change at the individual level. And not at, whereas here, most people say, well, what one person does doesn't matter. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to come back. How come, you, how come that was so, it seems obvious to me. It seemed obvious to you and almost no one else that I talked to. Well, I mean, for me, the, the issue is that the Western world has been created a model that I call a coverage model. It's like insurance coverage. And so, you know, you cover the needs of society in a, in a generality and you create a culture with that. But if you're talking about actually change in behavior, which is change of individual culture, you have to create that change within yourself before you could create a collective ideology or you could create a system to be able to represent that. And when you're really talking about the choices that somebody make, and what we were talking about was like how you how you radically change a culture in terms of the the choices that that person makes to live in balance and live in sustainability and to live in harmony, those are so core to the individual that it can't be imposed from outside. If it's a, if it's imposed upon the people, the people will never be able to embrace it. They'll be able to create a conflict polarity there where someone will be supporting it and someone will be negating it. But when it when it comes from within, when it comes from your soul, when it's when it's why you make a certain kind of choice and you've moved beyond 
the propaganda and you've moved beyond the different ways that your choices have been manipulated in our in modern society uh you know then core to the individual they'll identify with the nature of that choice and i just have seen it over and over again in the the working with medicinal plants when you use them to heal people somebody has to make that choice to to change themselves or they'll go recreate the illness and so if if a person is going to make that change, it has to come at the individual basis. And then a collective of all of those people who have made that change can then shape a culture around it. It seems so clear when you say it, and it feels so clear. And yet it's so people are so resistant to it. I think because they want to hold on to something, they don't want to change themselves. Or they I guess they believe all these stories like the Alex Epstein one about nature's dangerous. I don't want to get eaten by a jaguar. Did did you change that? I mean, when you were growing up in Silicon Valley, would you have not said it the way, would it not been so clear to you? I think when I was growing up in Silicon Valley, I wouldn't have understood. So I would have probably given you some kind of like, you know, indoctrinated or rhetoric oriented answer. I might have given you an answer that was regurgitated because I heard it from somebody else that I thought was intelligent. I'm not sure I could have had my own thoughts in that way at that time. You know, so I would probably say, no, I, I don't think I would have understood that answer. How is it living here now? I mean, you've been back for a long time, although not interacting with everyone for so much. I mean, how is it here now? Where are you exactly? So I'm, I'm kind of all over. I travel all the time. So I go between Peru and Costa Rica and different parts of South America and the United States. So right now I'm in the U.S. I'm in California. And uh, next week I'll be in Peru and then I'll be there for about two or three weeks and then I'll be heading to Central America. Um, I just it's really to me, the difference isn't like a country. It's whether you're in the cities or whether you're in the nature. And if you look at where the cities are, that's driving the collective zeitgeist. It's driving the collective consciousness of the people, but it's actually very short distance into the nature. And so in, in terms of like uh, absolute distance, so you see these pockets or hubs and then the tendrils reach out into nature, which are the supply chains back into the, the cities themselves. Um, you know, it's a little bit different where there's such industrialization, like, the East coast of, of the U S but, you know, even if you go down a little bit inward, you can start to get away from it pretty quickly. And um, so I find that I go from cities to nature and nature to cities and in cities, I just think that uh, unless you have a real purpose there, it, there isn't a lot of reason to be there. So I just see them. I understand why they exist, but I don't really feel a resonance or a bond with them myself. Any questions about what I'm doing or any questions back here? This, I've just been going one direction and I, I love what I'm learning. Do you think I'm getting a good sense of it or is this just such a superficial amount that it's like just scratching the surface? No, I, I think what's really important about what you're describing is this understanding of nature itself. And so I think the thesis of the conversation is, you know, is there an inherent balance with nature and do we live in it or is nature this negative thing? And what is the nature of what we're experiencing right now, which is a city in suburbia? And, you know, what have we done to that nature? And so, um, you know, I think that's actually a very important conversation to have because our cultural mores and understandings, I think, are skewed. And I think they've been manipulated to a certain kind of understanding around the quote unquote safety of living in these kinds of environments when we're seeing rampant disease, we're seeing, uh, you know, 
unsustainability at a level that you, it's hard to measure. In our last conversation, we were describing pollution that's now omnipresent. So you literally can't get away from it. We don't know how that's going to affect us on a cellular level, generation after generation, but we're already seeing decrease in reproductive capacities of humans that live in these environments. We're seeing an increase in mental illness. We're seeing an increase in toxicity of a physical toxicity, not just mental and emotional toxicity. We're seeing a degradation and polarization of culture and society, um, which I thought we were going to be moving beyond because I was growing up in you know a very progressive place in, in the 80s and 90s thinking like, oh, that's going to continue. We're actually regressing in terms of our progression as a society and as a, a global matrix. So I think that these are unbelievably important topics to talk about. <laughs> Partly that could be the beginning of another five hours. Uh, but at, we're at about an hour. To wrap up, I mean, what are you doing? How has that led you to what you're doing now? What are you doing now? And if people want to contact you, how do they reach you? Do you want people to contact you? Sure. I'm actually kind of, you know, coming out of the shadows in some ways and sharing what we're, what we've learned. And, you know, Blue Morpho, which was our center in the Amazon has reopened. We were uh, operating for 19 years and then COVID shut us down. And so we've actually reopened and people can come have medicinal plant experiences with us and they can experience ayahuasca with us in a safe and professional setting. We've been doing that for the, you know, the last 20 years. And I have really started speaking more and podcasting more and just putting these ideas out there onto the main stage to, you know, tell people, you know, something's more going on. And there are a lot of people who are interested and we're kind of all interconnected in terms of sustainability and growth and development and shift in consciousness. And it's, you know, I think fundamentally really important to how we're going to shape culture. And I think of it that we have a responsibility to the next generation to leave the world a better place for them and also to teach them how to do that for their next generations. And I like to think in very long periods of time. So I like to think of a hundred generations, a thousand, 10,000, a million and a billion generations, which will all be the humans of the world that they inherited from us. And so I think it's our responsibility to share these ideas and to talk about this. And so I'm happy for people to contact me. You can find me through uh, the web at bluemorphotours.com. Uh, you can also find me on social media. And Instagram at Hamilton Souther and on Facebook, Hamilton Souther Official. And yeah, be happy to have people contact us, come and see us, visit us, learn from us. And I'm actually starting an academy. The Blue Morpho Academy will be the first school to teach the visionary arts and consciousness arts and also medicinal plant arts um, in, a, in an authentic and very real way of sharing this knowledge so that we can preserve it and also help people in the West uh, learn from everything that we talked about on the podcast. Have you seen a lot of people learning? So, I mean, how many people have come through? What kind of changes have you seen in people if they're not there for the time that you spent there? Oh, that you can have incredible transformation in a very short period of time. So it depends on the kinds of, of uh, things that people are learning or the things that they're transforming in their lives. But when you talk about changing culture, an individual can have the experiences to shift all the choices in culture that we're talking about immediately and then learn to integrate them after the, the sessions of the visionary ceremonies with us. And so it can be very, very fast. People shed depression. They shed anxiety. They shed fear. They, um, they fix their lives. They, they fix the core four aspects of life, which is fundamentally your physical health, um, your relationships with the people closest to you. And it kind of goes, you know, family and closest friends and, and your 
your uh, intimate relationships and then your community relationships and then your bigger relationships. Um, and then people will fix their, their financial existence. They'll, you know, break through all the different ways that they've been self-sabotaging and not understanding the choices that they need to make to have a better financial existence in the modern world. And then also then their uh, connection to spirituality, their very own spirit, their own heart, their own consciousness and source, which is what we describe as, you know, the creative collective or divine of the universe itself. So in those four categories of body relationships, uh, finances and spiritual connection, we help them align and uh, ultimately have a much better life. You're describing this fixing things. Do people need to go? Do people need to feel they need fixing to go? What if they feel? Can you have the same? Can they have the same delta just starting from I'm doing great and reach potentials that they hadn't wouldn't have otherwise? Absolutely. Uh, that's one of the reasons that we're starting the academy. We wanted to, you know, in, in the healing ceremonies, the transformative ceremonies are there for absolute growth and development and also the idea of fixing things. So I've bifurcated that in our uh, presentation and say, okay, this is what healing is all about. And this is what growth and development is all about. Even though growth and development is the natural uh, extension of healing and healing is the natural extension of growth and development. So sort of as you go to grow, you'll find things that need to change in a positive way for you. And they call that healing. And so, um, yes, you can come from any any point uh, to ultimately expand your the quality of your life and to be able to learn how to make even better choices for yourself so that you can be more successful in all of those categories that I described. I could keep going and I, I hope to bring you back another time uh, or if you have if things have trans transitioned and or that you want to come back another time, please invite yourself. Okay. I'd love to. I'll invite myself now. I'd love to have another podcast with you. And um, well, anything to, to close with on this one? I just, I want to thank you for putting this out there and sharing these ideas. And I'd love to have more conversations with you also off the podcast, just to continue what we've been conversing about. And for everyone who's listening, I would like to say that, you know, we're all in this together. There's a tremendous we that's taking place. And we're not so isolated in our desires for change and growth and development and shift in culture and uh, radical sustainability is possible. And we can ultimately shift what we think of as a, uh, you know, the world, maybe not going in the direction we would like. So I'd like us to all think that it actually is possible to be able to make the kinds of changes that you share with the world and that we can do it together and we can actually have it be a really fun thing. And we don't have to be concerned ultimately about uh, what's going to happen to the planet because we can do something about it. Great closing. I, I'm, I'm not going to change it. Hamilton Southard, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. It's been a pleasure to be on the podcast. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.